Well, good morning again. Uh, I'm glad to be back with you all after a few couple weeks away from the pulpit anyway. Uh, you get that itch as a, as a preacher, you want to get back up there and, and, and preach. But man, we've just been very, very blessed the last couple of weeks with, with Matt and Nathaniel. Um, I don't know of two men that I love and respect more. And man, uh, if you weren't sure that I was doing expositional preaching or what that was, Nathaniel just put on a clinic last week. It was wonderful. We had a great homecoming. We got to eat afterwards. It was awesome. And so maybe this week will be a little bit like um, having real ice cream and then eating fat-free ice cream. Or, uh, or perhaps like going to a professional baseball game and then going to like a high school one. So, but I trust that you will grant me your ear as we try to rightly divide uh, the word of truth. And so let me read our passage this morning. We're in Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through five. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish that having begun with the Spirit, you are now ending or being perfected by the flesh? Did you experience, suffer so many things in vain? If it really is in vain. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing and with faith? Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for this text. We thank you for this book of Galatians that indeed encourages us to rest in your accomplished work on our behalf. That encourages us to play, to enjoy you. Father, I pray this morning that you would impress your word upon us, that you would conform us to your likeness, that this word would be a good work to us, that we would understand the gospel better, and that we would apply it to every area of our lives. God, give us wisdom, give us understanding. I pray that my words wouldn't be heard, but your words alone. ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. If you haven't been with us, what we have been doing here is walking through the book of Galatians exegetically or expositionally. And that's just to say that we've been walking through it in such a way which typically comes verse by verse or section by section. And we're trying to get at the main idea of the text or the authorial intent. And so we think that when we can get at the authorial intent, we can see what the author means to communicate to his original audience. Which we believe is divinely inspired by God the Holy Spirit. And so when we get at his thoughts and his minds, we're actually able to bow down and exchange our thoughts for God's thoughts. And so we see how that meaning applies both to the original audience, and then we want to take it and we see how it's significant to our own lives. Because we believe that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword, right? That it has something to say to us right now. So to summarize the, the previous two chapters that we went through earlier on in our trek through Galatians, um, Paul basically says that a desertion from the gospel is a desertion from God. That he indeed is a true authoritative apostle. And that his message of salvation is the only message of salvation. It's the only truly good news. We never leave the gospel behind. Last week, in verses 15 through 21 of chapter 2, we saw Paul say that justification comes by faith alone. He says it three times. Remember, he said, not by works, three times. This week, we're going to see that the main idea of our text 
is the reception of the Holy Spirit mark, is the mark that signifies that we belong to the people of God. The main idea of the text today is that the Holy Spirit is the mark that signifies that we belong to the people of God. Further, we're going to see that those that have received the Holy Spirit are sanctified in the same way they've been justified. We're going to break down those two words a little bit later, but just put that on the back shelf for now. That those that have received the Holy Spirit are sanctified the same way they've been justified. That is, by believing and with faith, by hearing with faith. The question I want you to think about this morning as we walk through this text is, do you belong to the people of God? Do you belong to the people of God? My exhortation to you today, my one big point that I want you to walk away with and go home with today, is that you need to dance with the one that brought you. Dance with the one that brought you. I don't know if you've heard that phrase before. I had, and it took me a long time in my life to come across it, you know, all... 26 years of it. So I had, to, I had to Google it, which, you know, Google is just really good if you're researching. And uh, I came across the Urban Dictionary, which seems an authoritative dictionary, right? And the Urban Dictionary defines dancing with the one that brought you as follows. Dance with the one that brought you. The principle that someone should pray proper fealty to those that have gone out of their way to look after them. So, like, if somebody takes you to the dance, you're supposed to dance with that person instead of, I don't know, finding somebody maybe better looking or more handsome or more attractive at that time, whatever it may be, uh, and dancing with them. You've got to dance with the one that brought you. I still wasn't sure, and so I did some more Googling, and I came across renowned lyricist Shania Twain. She writes, Well, he shines like a penny in a little kid's hand when he's out on a Saturday night. He's a real go-getter, the best two-stepper that you'll ever see. But when I'm sitting alone at a table for two, because he's already out on the floor, I think about something that my mama used to say to me. You've got to dance with the one that brought you. Stay with the one that wants you, the one who's going to love you when all others have gone home. Don't let the green grass fool you, and don't let the moon get to you. Dance with the one that brought you, and you can't go wrong. We're going to see today that the Galatians have been saved by faith, by Christ. And what Paul's rhetorical questions are getting at today, what he's asking them, he's kind of saying, are you so foolish that you started by trusting in Jesus? You started by faith alone, and now you're going to add to that? You're going to go into the Jesus Plus program that we've talked about with the Judaizers? You think that you have to be circumcised to be saved, that you're going to be perfected by your works when you couldn't even be saved by your works? In other words, don't go wandering after another. Stay with the one that brought you. Dance with Jesus. That's my exhortation to you this morning. And so let us enter into the text. We're going to start with verses 1 through 2. Paul writes, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Paul's argument here is vigorous, it's pointed. He's writing, he starts out with that passionate, Oh, so you know that he is amped up, he's into it. He's calling the Galatians and intelligent people foolish. Now, he's not doing it in a way that's mean or or angry. He's not saying, you you know, you're so stupid. No, it's more like if you were watching your your favorite sports team. Um, If they're like my sports teams, they often make a lot of mistakes. And you're looking at the TV and you're going, come on! No, you you know better than that. Or kind of how he exhorted Peter previously. You know better than that. It's a plea with them. So are you so foolish? that you've been justified by faith and now 
you're returning to works of the law? This section is a series of rhetorical questions. Rhetorical questions have answers that are plain and obvious. So the, the answers might not be so plain and obvious to us. I hope that they are by the time we're done. But they were plain and obvious to the Galatians. Um, if you don't really understand how that works, uh, maybe you've seen the Geico commercial where the, the guy has slick back hair and he says, can Geico really save you 15% or more on car insurance? And he follows it up with another rhetorical question. Can Charlie Daniels play a mean fiddle? And it'll cut away to the scene and Charlie Daniels is like playing Devil Went Down to Georgia or something similar. And you're like, well, clearly he's playing an awesome fiddle, so clearly they can, play, they can save me money on my car insurance. So that's what's going on with these rhetorical questions. He's making a point. He's making an argument. He's not just asking questions for the sake of asking questions. The Galatians are behaving illogically. It doesn't make sense. That's why he's calling them foolish. He actually says that they're bewitched. Bewitched. He's used language like this before. And you've probably heard it in our own culture, right? You've heard maybe when, I don't know, your teenage years and you had a friend like I might have that just really got into a certain girl, you might say, man, she has really got her clutches in him. He is really under her spell. Or, uh, man, what's that old song? I can't think of the group's name right now. But uh, they sing it. It says, put a spell on you. And I don't remember. The next line is, because you're mine, perhaps. I don't remember. I'm not a great singer either. So, uh, But the idea is that they're under a spell. They're acting out of the ordinary. They're acting differently than they would act in any other situation. Paul is kind of saying it's almost like they went to see somebody that does hypnotizing. And all of a sudden they're up on the stage and they're walking around and they're clucking and acting like chickens, right? It's not something they would do if they were in their right mind. Paul is essentially snapping his fingers three times and he's telling them to wake up. Snap out of it. Jesus has been crucified publicly portrayed as the crucified one. He's telling them to get in their right mind, to renew their mind, to place their eyes back on Jesus who is publicly portrayed as crucified. Harkens us back to verse 20. The Galatians, if they placed their faith in Christ, would say along with Paul, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's nullifying them, verse 21 of chapter 2. Do not nullify the grace of God. Remember that you receive the Spirit by hearing and with faith, not works. Therefore, continue in the Spirit by hearing with faith, not works. Now, Paul says Jesus was crucified before their own eyes. That's curious, isn't it? Because, you know, Paul's writing a little bit after the time Jesus was crucified. Paul you know, didn't become a Christian until after Jesus was crucified, and the Galatians didn't become Christians until after Paul went to them. So what does he mean that they were, he was publicly portrayed as crucified? Does he mean that the Galatians were there? No. He's saying that he painted a picture for them in the preaching of the word, and the proclamation of the word, so that it was as if they were there. Maybe you've done this. Maybe um, somebody's told you a story, and you've just been like, man, it was like I was there. You go over to your grandma's small house and you, you feel the warmth of the kitchen and you smell the cookies as they're pulled out of the oven and that cool glass of milk. See, it's a word picture. It's vivid. It gives you sights and smells and sounds. And so, you know, some of you that went over to grandma's house like I did when I was little, maybe you just thought of grandma's kitchen. I was there. You know, I'm there with you, Paul. And so it's in such a way that they're being held accountable as if they had been there. They had seen Christ it's crucified. Paul's reminding them that they have seen Jesus. 
and that they should keep their eyes on Jesus, that they have received the Spirit by hearing and with faith. He's hearkening them to remember their conversion. Do you remember your conversion? Do you remember your testimony? I remember my conversion. I think of it often. It was more of a, more of a process than a particular moment in time. It was probably in my awkward preteen years. Uh, and uh, I remember going to church with my mother and father and uh, sitting, and they didn't have cushions in the pews where I went, and just this hard back pew, and like my backside was like half numb by the time the preacher even started speaking. But I remember by the end of the service, something had changed in me. You know, I didn't, I didn't have every head bowed, every eye closed. I didn't raise my hand or anything like that. But I knew I had been changed forever. I knew that I wanted to follow Jesus. A few weeks later, I was, I was baptized uh, in order to be obedient to the call of Christ. And my life was changed forever. A miracle. A miracle. Indeed, Paul will reiterate his main point in verse 5. And he says, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing and with faith? You see, just as the Galatians had miracles, and I believe that he's pointing to the miracle of their conversion primarily, and secondarily, he's pointing to actual physical miracles where there are healings and and whatnot going on. But here's what I want you to do. God still does miracles. He's done the miracle of your conversion. If if you're sitting there going, I've never experienced a miracle. You have if you know the Lord Jesus. Remember your conversion. Remember your testimony. Remember how you have received Christ. I'm often discouraged when some people come to me and go, I can't remember a day in my life where I didn't know Jesus. You know, and this guy over here, he was in drug addiction. He was an alcoholic. And the Lord plucked him out. They pulled him out. He saved him. Man, what a great testimony. I wish my testimony was as good as that. And I always look, I go, really? Like the Lord has preserved you, He's given you His grace your whole life? How awesome is that? Both are miracles. Both should be rejoiced in. God is a miracle worker. He has saved you and He saved the other person. Your testimony is unique. It's a work of God. It's a miracle when it should be rejoiced in. What a marvelous privilege to know the God of the universe. To know Him from your first days. Or even if it's in the last moments of life. What a miracle. Do you remember your conversion? Is Jesus still before your eyes? Did you arrive at the dance and then become swept away by another? Are you still continuing by believing and with faith? Or do Paul's next words sting you? Verse 3. Are you so foolish, having begun with the Spirit... Are you now ending or being perfected by the flesh? Again, I want to point out the Galatians have been confused by the false teachers who have come in and continue to articulate that Jesus plus program, especially in terms of circumcision. They're saying, yeah, okay, you've got Jesus. Now you're you're saved, kind of. But to fulfill that salvation, to perfect it, you need to be circumcised. And you need to follow all the laws of the Mosaic Code. And they're buying it. The Galatians are buying it, hook, line, and sinker. They're like, all right, I guess I'll go get circumcised and I'll follow these things. And Paul is exhorting them, no. Here's the thing. We often buy it too. We buy this idea that we can identify ourselves. We buy this idea that by self-autonomy and by self-effort, 
we can build up the meaning of our lives. That we can make ourselves significant. We look towards self-salvation. We like this idea of being in control. That we have lordship over our own lives. Because we do want in some way to to self-justify. Paul is saying no. He's again bolstering that point in chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. Not by works, not by works, not by works. But by faith, by faith, by faith, Christian. Christian life follows the same course, whether the issue is justification or sanctification. I told you we were going to define these two words. Here's the time. Justification is a forensic term or a legal term that means being made right with God. It's God declaring us righteous. Now, sanctification, you've heard justification before. Sanctification, some of you are like, all right, I'm ready for that word. This sounds exciting. Sanctification, I think the simple way to define it, uh, I had a professor named Dr. Lederbach who defined it this way. So sanctification is becoming in practice what God has declared us to be in truth. Becoming in practice what God has declared us to be in truth. In other words, we don't graduate from the gospel, that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we continue by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And as we're declared righteous, we continue to become more and more like God by believing, not doing. In the same way that we receive the Spirit, by believing, not doing. The path to more Christ-likeness, to more godliness, is by believing, not doing. Yet, I do think some clarification is needed. The last few weeks I've encouraged us all to take off our work clothes and to put on our play clothes, right? To enjoy God. I want to exhort you to enjoy God. But it's certainly not a call to sit down and to be lazy. Remember, even further back in our um, walk through Galatians, I talked about the, the kid that wants to hit a home run to earn his father's approval, to earn his father's acceptance. It's very different than the kid that wants to hit a home run to please his father. And so while I don't want you to earn your salvation or work towards it, there is effort required on our part. But it must be gospel-driven effort. The difference between the two might seem minimal but they're exponentially large. They're actually the difference between life and death. John MacArthur says it this way, Legalism is separated from true obedience by attitude. Legalism is separated from true obedience by attitude. Perhaps an illustration from Scripture will help. Uh, Genesis chapter 4, verses 2 through 10. You probably know this one. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a tiller of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel brought of the firstlings of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain said to Abel, his brother, let us go out into the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel, and he killed him. The Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what 
have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Both brothers offer from their occupation. Cain from the ground and Abel from the herd. God's not pleased with Abel because he offers from the herd versus the ground. No, he's pleased with Abel because his offering comes from a sincere faith and a pure heart that seeks to please God. Not to oblige God to give him something good. Not to earn God's favor, but to please him. Cain's offering is rejected because his heart is evil. That's demonstrated in the killing of the innocent. Indeed, of his own brother. Legalism is separated from true obedience by attitude. Again, we see this principle at work in Luke 18, verses 10 through 14. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. I'm pretty much awesome. That's my note. That's not in the verse. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But he who humbles himself will be exalted. Do you see the difference? Do you see the difference? Legalism or self-salvation, work salvation, is separated from true obedience by the attitude of our heart. Obligatory obedience will be rejected. The Lord desires mercy, not sacrifice. Affectionate obedience. Oh, that'll be accepted. Sanctification. It calls us to obey. Not in order to earn, but to enjoy. When we know Christ, when we know we're accepted by God, obedience becomes enjoyment. And indeed, enjoyment becomes obedience. It's our joy to live out the Ten Commandments. It's our joy to share Christ with one another. And it's the Holy Spirit that empowers us to answer the call of the gospel, to answer the commands, the imperatives that we see in Scripture. But remember, all these imperatives, all these commands flow from the indicatives. The imperatives flow from the indicatives. That's just to say that doing flows from being. Our sanctification is becoming in practice what God has declared us to be in truth. There's a passive aspect to it in that we must believe and rely on God the Holy Spirit to sanctify us. And it's active because we're commanded to strive to obey God. Passive in that we depend on God. Active in that we strive towards obedience. The order is important. We trust and obey. Perhaps you've heard that old hymn, trust and obey. I sang twice in one sermon. Y'all remember that. Trust and obey. Because we trust Christ and we know that we're fully accepted in God. And therefore, we obey out of that acceptance so that we can please Him. Rather than obey and trust trying to earn his favor, and then trusting him, it, doesn't, it just doesn't work that way. You mess up the essence of the gospel. Paul highlights the uh, passive and active elements that I was speaking about in our sanctification, in being perfected by the Spirit. 
In Philippians chapter 2, he says this, Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work His good pleasure. Friends, we do have a role to play. But we're only able to play it as a result of believing God and yielding to the work of the Holy Spirit in us. In other words, the Christian life, we are not, we're not just like sailboats out on the ocean, just sitting there and the breeze is just going to come and blow us along into more Christ-likeness. We're not going to just drift toward holiness. D.A. Carson writes it this way. People do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, toward prayer, toward obedience to the Scripture, toward faith, and toward delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise, and we call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience, and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition, and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control, and we call that relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness, and delude ourselves into thinking that we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves that we have been liberated. God the Holy Spirit is within you, Christian. It is the fuel that enables you to do good works. The Holy Spirit is the source of the Christian life, not the product of faithful living, but the power behind it. The Holy Spirit is the source of the Christian life, not the product of faithful living, but the power Behind it, we are saved by the gospel. We grow by the gospel. We are justified by the gospel. We are sanctified by the gospel. We never leave the gospel behind. It is the ABCs of the Christian faith, and it's the A2Zs of the Christian faith. It's the shallow end of the pool, and it's the deep end of the pool. We are saved by the gospel. We grow by the gospel by applying it to each and every area of our lives. It's all about God. It's all about saving faith that comes by hearing. When we grasp the miracle of the gospel. We will make an enemy of sin. We won't just avoid it. We'll hate it. We'll make war with sin. I like what Jared Wilson writes here. He says, Make bloodthirsty war with the sin that's in you. Watch for it. Search it out. Assassinate it with the word of God. Arm yourselves with spiritual armor. Put on Christ and spare no sin you find. Kill it. Even as you trust the Spirit is killing it on your behalf. Because He is. And if He is, you should be also. We will not grow in Christ through stasis. The Spirit gives us what we need to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in us both to will and to work His good pleasure. Sanctification is a progressive work of God and of man that makes us more and more free from sin and more and more like Christ in our actual lives. It's becoming in practice what God has declared us to be in truth. Consequently, the same Spirit that saves us, that justifies us, sanctifies us. We're not ever going to be perfect in this life as we try to be like Jesus. We're never going to reach this point where we go, you know what? As a Christian, I've arrived. I have got it. Sinless perfection. It's not going to happen. But we will be growing in holiness. Martin Luther had a, a saying for this. He, and the saying just meant that simultaneously we're declared righteous. At the same time we're righteous, we're still 
sinners. We're sinners and righteous at the same time. See, we're counted righteous in God's eyes because of Jesus. But this does not make us righteous in and of ourselves. As long as the Christian lives, he is guilty in himself. But in Christ, he is righteous. In other words, we have Christ and we're declared righteous. And so, in this life, we strive toward becoming in practice what God has declared us to be in truth by the power of the Holy Spirit that lives within us. But we're not going to reach perfection until we die or until Jesus returns. I don't really want to die. I'm hoping it's Jesus returns that I get to be perfect. I don't know about y'all. So how is your obedience? Is it obligatory? Or is it affectionate? Who's it depending on? Jesus or yourself? Where are you building the meaning of your life? He is the one that saved you. He's brought you to the dance. Are you still dancing with Him? Are you dancing with the one that brought you or... Have your eyes wandered to another? We must dance with the one that brought us, Christian, lest our experiences and our sufferings be in vain. That's what Paul's going to write in the next verse. Did you experience so many things in vain? If really, is it, it is in vain. Paul is summoning the Galatians to free themselves from their prevailing absorption with the present. He wants them to reflect on their past, to really meditate on the things that have happened to them. Their experiences in the Christian life, their experience of conversion and miracles, as well as the suffering that they've endured as Christians. Paul is saying, like, it's almost like he's doubting their conversion. Saying, have you you've departed from continuing with the Spirit, and now you're trying to work out your own salvation? Like, are you sure you're saved? It's kind of like this, I'm not sure that you know Jesus if, if you're continuing to depart from Christ. Your experiences will be in vain if you've done that. Paul wants them to remember Christ crucified. The one portrayed is crucified. Again, this harkens us back to um, verse 21 of chapter 2. Does Jesus' death mean everything or nothing? Will your actions nullify the grace of God or will they embrace the grace of God? He wants to know, is their faith genuine or is it empty and worthless? Have they received the Spirit? Do they belong to the people of God? Have you thought of your past experiences, of your suffering? Are they empty? Are they vanity? Or are they treasures that point you to Christ? Have you received the Spirit? Do you belong to the people of God? Or have you built for yourself your own kingdom? Has your religious observance been in vain? Or has it been affectionate? If you have the Holy Spirit, your experience indeed will not be vanities, but grace-filled catalysts of sanctification. If you do not, I'm telling you that your suffering and your experiences have been for nothing. Because without Christ, no one can be made perfect. No one. And all are sinful. Think, have you truly trusted Christ? Do you know Him? Are you dancing with Him? Or have you abandoned the one that brought you? Does He who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing and with faith? 
Paul's reiterating here that the Spirit's presence comes by hearing and with faith. That the Holy Spirit supplies us with what we need to be saved and what we need to continue in Christ. Being precedes doing. The imperatives flow from the indicatives. We have been made together alive with Christ. And we become more Christ-like because we are His. And the Spirit dwells within us. Not to satisfy works of the law, but because it is God's good pleasure. Because we belong to the family of God. Perhaps you remember the film in 1982, a movie came out. It was called Annie. It featured a young orphan girl who was swept out of the vile clutches of Miss Hannigan at the inner city orphanage. Where she and her friends spent their hard knock life, mired in the menial tasks and delivered into a gleaming mansion of the billionaire, Mr. Warbucks. See, when Annie first arrives, she's mesmerized by the size and the beauty of the mansion, by the scores of cheerful servants. Her hostess asks, Well, Annie, what would you like to do first? Annie misunderstands. She says that she would probably like to start with the floors. She thinks that she needs to get to work. The hostess just wants to know what fun things she would like to do to start her own life. Annie has not realized that she is not an orphan anymore. Christian, you are a Christian. You have a new identity. It's Christ. Let your doing emerge from your being. It won't work the other way around. The other way around will lead you to frustration and devastation. If you're not a Christian, it's never too late to learn to dance. If you are, I want to exhort you to dance with the one that brought you. Do you belong to the people of God this morning? Or do you belong to the culture of death? How is your obedience? Are you growing in holiness or in sinfulness? The cross gives us a portrait of God's justice and His mercy. And at the cross, we see the crucified one. And when we keep Him ever before our eyes, we do not experience or suffer through life in vain by returning to works, but daily returning to our knees and thanking God for the wonderful salvation that He has purchased for us. Jesus loves us and He will keep us. Do you need to return to your knees today and thank God for what He has done? Perhaps you need to get on your knees for the first time to believe, to receive the Spirit, to be welcomed into the family of God. Christian, I exhort you to dance with the one that brought you. Non-Christian, I challenge you, it's never too late to learn to dance.